Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the addiction and drug overdose crisis in Metro Vancouver and all around British Columbia. We all see this everywhere. It doesn't matter where you live. The public drug use, the homeless camps, the untreated mental illness on our streets, and the unrelenting death count of drug users. Now, the new numbers have just been released. And as expected, 2023 was the worst year ever for drug overdose deaths in British Columbia. 2,511 toxic drug deaths last year. That's nearly seven a day. It was also the first year of drug decriminalization in B.C. We're the only province in Canada that has done this. 2.5 grams, that is the legal possession limit in B.C. now, for heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, and fentanyl. Critics say this decrim has been a disaster. They say the death count last year and the first year of this is proof of that. But the province, though, insisting decriminalization is working. They say this would be even worse if we didn't have decriminalization. The answer from the province, continue with decrim and expand safe supply of drugs. These would be government-approved, lab-tested opioids to give to drug users. So if if they're going to use street drugs, at least they won't die if they use these so-called safe supply drugs. I got Tom Wolf standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to the chief coroner here. This is Lisa LaPointe speaking yesterday. Unless we are willing to act thoughtfully, carefully, and with courage to provide a safer supply, more people will suffer and more families will grieve. Okay, officials calling for an expansion of safe supply even without a doctor's prescription and even for underage drug users too. There are calls for that as well. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tom Wolf. Tom is a, a recovered drug addict himself. He's now with the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Tom, thank you very much for coming on. Good morning, Mike. It's great to be back. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And Tom, when we hear this number here, I think we've all become kind of numb to these numbers in a way, but 2,511 toxic drug deaths last year in B.C., what does that say to you in a, in a province where we've got decriminalization of drug possession, we've got calls to expand safe supply of drugs? Your thoughts? Well, it, it just shows that what you guys are doing isn't working. So uh, BC has doubled down on the harm reduction model, kind of a radical interpretation of the harm reduction model. You have over a dozen supervised consumption sites, safer supply programs. And I just want to point out that that started off as a safe supply program, and they moved the goalpost to make it safer supply because they know that that supply is actually not safe either. Uh, and, yeah. you know, dis- despite all those efforts, decriminalization, et cetera, uh, you continue every month and every year to break your own records in British Columbia and in Vancouver for overdose deaths. Yeah, of course, the province is saying, yes, we realize these numbers are terrible and tragic, but they say it would be even worse if we did not have safe supply, if we did not have decriminalization that number of deaths would be even higher, they argue. Let's have another listen to the coroner here, Tom, get your thoughts. Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe here, again, calling for expansion of the safer supply model. Let's listen. 
the most critical thing we can do is expand access to safer supply while also offering people support, help, avenues uh, to reduce their substance use. Okay, so they, they want to reduce substance use by expanding the supply of safer supply of drugs, notably Dilaudid, which is a, an opioid. And there are also calls, Tom, right now to change the model so you don't even have to have a doctor's prescription to get these drugs. What do you think of that? Well, so first of all, I've done Dilaudid, and I've done fentanyl and heroin and all of those things. And so Dilaudid's not as strong as fentanyl. Right. And so what happens is that if you're already addicted to fentanyl and you take Dilaudid, uh, that's not going to do anything for you. So what you're already starting to see is you're starting to see something called diversion, where people are accessing the safe supply of Dilaudid pills, or dillies as they're called, and you're starting to see them show up on the streets of Vancouver because people are getting their safe supply and selling it for cash so that they can buy the stronger stuff, which is fentanyl. People forget that addiction is a progressive disease. And as you continue to use more opioids, your tolerance goes up. So that mm. means you have to use even more to get the, the lasting effect that you want. So if you're going to actually try to switch to a weaker drug, that's not going to work because you've already progressed beyond the effect of Dilaudid to fentanyl. So I, I really don't understand the, the mentality of, well, if we just provide more drugs, that's going to reduce drug use, when really what's happening is that the Dilaudid, unfortunately, is supplementing the already bad supply of drugs that's out there on the street for oh, folks, okay, and okay. it's making it more dangerous. Well, the government, of course, is arguing fiercely on the other side of this and saying that they now have evidence and scientific data that shows that this safe supply is working and that more people would be dead today if we didn't have this. Let me play a, a clip here for you, Tom, for your thoughts. Dr. Mark Tindall, uh, he's a big supporter of the Safe Supply Program here. He would like to see it expanded too. And here he is describing how this works, okay? So if someone is a hardcore user, if you get them on this Safe Supply drug, this Dilaudid, he says it can dramatically change people's lives. Let's listen. People say, well, all you're doing is preventing people from dying and you're not really addressing all their other problems. My experience and the idea of safe supply, if you can um, interrupt the, the grind that people go through to get their illegal drugs every day, it changes their lives dramatically. And they can work on you know, housing and um, social, other social things and their health if they don't have to get up every morning and go and search for illegal drugs. Tom, have you ever seen any evidence of that? Like if people get on the Safer Supply program, that they can, you know, you can straighten your life out? Uh, no, I've never seen any evidence of that. You have to remember that I started out, my addiction began with a safe supply of opioids. I got addicted to oxycodone after surgery, and I was taking 560 milligrams of oxycodone a day, and my life had completely fallen apart as a result of that addiction. So it, so this whole idea that, well, if we get them switched over to this drug, it won't be as bad. Uh, first of all, it, it's pretty much impossible to, to switch them over from fentanyl. It's like once you go to fentanyl, there's no going back. The only out for you is to stop, is to actually go into treatment and recovery and actually break the, the chain of addiction, not switching to a weaker drug. That doesn't work for folks anyway, because again, the tolerance, it's too, fentanyl is too strong. It's completely changed the game. We're not talking about heroin here. We're talking about a drug 10 to 100 times stronger than heroin that's out there on yeah. the street. Yeah. So I, again, it, the thinking here, I understand, 
I understand it, that they're trying to be compassionate and trying to find solutions to help people. But really, the solution to this is to expand drug treatment, incentivize it, make it more attractive for people to actually go and break that addiction and start their lives over again at that point. Speaking of Tom Wolf, Tom is a recovered drug user, Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. Let me ask you about decriminalization, because British Columbia is probably the most... uh, radical, I guess you could say, jurisdiction, maybe in North America on this file, and with decriminalization of possession of these drugs. So we're talking heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, even fentanyl. So you're illegally allowed to carry around two and a half grams of fentanyl in in B.C. Look what's going on in Oregon. This is really interesting because Oregon was ahead of the curve here on us. They went with decrim before we did. And now... It sounds like, boy, there's a lot of pressure there to go backward, to backpedal on this and go to re- forget about decrim. They want to go to recrim, recriminalize drug possession there in Oregon. What's going on there, Tom? Well, two things are happening in Oregon. So number one, it, it, this has been a, like a three to four year experiment in Oregon. It passed in 2020, Measure 110 that decriminalized three grams uh, possession of drugs. Uh, what you've seen are two things. One, Oregon's overdose death rate is growing four times faster than any other state in the United States, number one. And number two, you're seeing an increase in the associated behaviors of someone struggling with addiction. So you're seeing increase in increases in quality of life crimes that are directly related to addiction. And that's something that we don't talk about. All these proponents of safe supply and decriminalization point at, well, we're going to reduce overdose deaths, but they never want to talk about the associated behaviors, the crime, the shoplifting, the violence, um, all, all of those things that come, the, the broken homes, uh, all of those things that come with addiction that are not being addressed. And in fact, are in Oregon appear to be getting worse. I was in Portland in September of last year. And, you know, I'm from San Francisco, which is one of the epicenters of the opioid crisis in North America. We're probably second only to Vancouver, or maybe Philadelphia. And uh, I actually thought Portland, downtown Portland was worse. There were tents everywhere and everyone on the street was using fentanyl. Tom Wolf is my guest. Full phone board here. Peter in North Vancouver. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I've got two things I want to say. And the first is kudos for having Tom Wolf on. Um, I've read part of Tom's story and testimony in the book San Francisco. I've seen Tom interviewed mm. on the two uh, KOMO um, uh documentary news documentaries about seattle seattle is dying and the fight for the soul of seattle and tom i want to say thank you for what you're doing for people you're clearly paying back and and uh you're saving lives although we need more people to listen to you and the second thing i want to say is i really just like it when our own government and officials gaslight us and to me i can always tell when i'm being gaslit because they say things that sound scientific but they don't quote the science and this claim that, oh, we simply need to double down on safer supply uh, or more people would have died if we didn't do it, uh, where's the science? Because math doesn't lie. Well, and okay, well, well, hang on, hang on. Let, let, me, let me quote one of the studies for you that the government is relying on here. So this was a study that was published in the British Medical Journal. Okay, so this is a... A peer-reviewed study, and it says people with addiction who received the safe supply of prescribed opioids were 61% less likely to die than those who did not have access to it, especially in the in the week following the when they first start taking the drugs. Tom, what do you say to that? Well, I, I would say that you know they took a one-week snapshot. 
So no. th- that's not that's not data. They took a one week snapshot of a very tightly controlled group to come up to come up with that conclusion. And then they march it out as being verified data that this program works. I think we need a little bit more data than one week to actually arrive at a conclusion that this program is works. That's well, not the de- evidence. I mean, me. the record death count that was just revealed yesterday, last year. I mean, maybe that's the most compelling data. Is right. it not? That is. That's yeah. the yeah. death is the ultimate statistic. Yeah. It, yeah. Steve and Delta. Statistic. Steve and Delta. Steve, go ahead. Well, the the part that bugs me about this is this is a government program, and if they have to back down, it means they're wrong. So right now we're the government is uh, basing things on their philosophy, and they're using people's lives as a you know unfortunate uh, side effect of a bad bad uh, you know policy and you know it's the same like with our federal government you know with too much immigration and they're saying well it's not the immigration that's raising you know real estate prices and so forth so when you get governments that dig their heels in the in the sand and say well i'm right i'm right you know it sounds like my dad when he used to have too many drinks you know and you know i'm right regardless and everybody else is wrong and okay it's, it's real bad well thank you steve well okay on the other hand though tom I have received some listener calls on this show that were absolutely heartbreaking from parents who lost their kids to opioid addiction who wished that their child had been on one of these safe supply drugs dilaudid and were convinced that it would help. So what do you say to that? Because I've talked to people who are convinced this is the right way to go. Sure. And you're always going to have people that are convinced that that one way is better than the other. The thing is, is we need more evidence. We need more data. One week snapshots are not evidence and it's not data. Uh, the bottom line is that, you know, we're never going to have full prohibition. That ship has sailed. I think we all understand that, that sure. there's going to. And if we, you know, if we pivot and let's say legalized dilaudid and made it available to everyone, do you think the cartels are just going to take their ball and go home and pivot to selling avocados? Or are they going to come up with something even more lethal and cheaper uh, than than dilaudid that's going to attract people experiencing severe addiction to that drug because again when you're using drugs and addiction is a progressive disease you always want the strongest stuff when i was out on the street they would post uh, bills on on telephone poles that says hey be careful out there there's a really strong batch of heroin going around don't overdose you know what we would all do we would run and find the dealer that's selling the strongest batch of heroin because we wanted the strongest stuff. That's the truth. That's the reality that we have to face. Tom, thank you for coming on today. we got tons more calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back on. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much. All right. Let's talk about the Clean BC plan. Now, this is the BC government's plan for climate change. It calls for the rapid and massive electrification of the province and the economy. We've talked a lot about the plan to go to 100% electric vehicle sales by 2035, for example. That is the law of the land here in BC. One of the other deadlines in this plan is even earlier than that, though. Uh, 2030 is very prominent in the Clean BC plan. That is the deadline to transition away from natural gas furnaces. Get rid of those. Natural gas hot water tanks. We don't want those. We need electrification here. So the province wants electric heat pumps, electric hot water tanks, 
2030 is a very prominent date here to begin this phase out. Can we do this? If you heat your home with natural gas, how do you think a heat pump would work for you? Might depend where you live, right? How is the government going to do this here? Now, let's discuss it with my guest, Peter Millibar, BC United MLA in Kamloops. Peter, thanks for coming on today. You bet, always, but come on, Mike. Okay, I know you're hearing a lot from local contractors there in Kamloops because the government has launched like a consultation process here with the industry, right? Like the HVAC industry. What are you hearing from people? Well, we're hearing exactly as we saw in the, the news articles that have come out now that uh, the government's making it very clear that they intend to essentially ban uh, natural gas in British Columbia by 2030. And, and it, it's uh, ridiculous in the extreme when you consider the cold snap we just had, uh, the sheer amount of, of energy and power that we needed to generate from natural gas for everybody to stay warm. Uh, we will not have the capacity on the electrical grid uh, to make it happen. And, and on top of that, how the heck are people in these economic times supposed to come up with an extra four to $15,000 uh, to start changing out heating systems that are, are otherwise fine and, and working just fine for them. Yeah, I'm taking a look at the Clean BC roadmap from the government, and it says the goal here is to move to a highest efficiency equipment standard, which includes electric baseboard heaters in homes, electric furnaces, electric heat pumps, uh, electric hot water tanks, and this is what they want to see. They want to see natural gas appliances phased out there's also talk here though about allowing a hybrid system right what, is, what how would that work you would have like an electric system but with a natural gas backup almost like a hybrid car in a way yeah well i mean, I mean a lot of heat pumps uh unless you go really really expensive um can't handle the, the extreme colds and so they need a natural gas backup um, to begin with, and so to, to supplement the heat when it, it really drops, as we saw over the last couple of weeks. I mean, the key to all of this is, uh, you know, this is why we're calling uh, Clean BC Cost BC now, because as we saw with, with the government's own documents and calculations, the only way for them to remotely come close to achieving their goals uh, under Clean BC is to literally shut down the province and see a huge economic hit. Uh, GDP growth would, would stall back to 2013 levels. We would see Households losing a, an average of $11,000 in income a year, 200,000 uh, jobs lost. And, and then you see these types of policies being rolled out. And that's exactly what they're attempting to do, despite them saying, oh, no, 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 uh, you, you misinterpreted the, the data that set that right. we created ourselves. It's, it's, it's like I say, it's ridiculous in the extreme. And uh, I don't think people are going to be very happy, uh, and, and it's an odd timing for them, given that uh, it is an election year, and they've sat on their hands when it comes to energy and, and electricity for, for seven years, and now they're suddenly scrambling, trying to, trying to do all of this in the next six years. It just simply doesn't stand the, the smell test. Well, the government is, of course, saying, Peter, as you, as you touched on there, that the critics are twisting this data. They're misinterpreting it here. They're, they argue this will actually be good for the economy. This is going to be a good thing. It's going to save money. It's, it's all going to be great. And we have to do this in order, of course, to lower our greenhouse gas emissions here in BC, do our part to fight climate change. And let's have a listen to the environment minister here. This is George Heyman on the Clean BC program here that's unfolding. Let's listen. We have comprehensive uh, programs and pathways with a range of options, uh, initiatives across all sectors of the economy and community, uh, ways to help 
average people do what they want to do, which is lower their carbon footprint. Okay, so he says this is helping people do what they want to do, right? You're not buying that? People. Go ahead. Oh, this is going to help average people into bankruptcy. Um, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous in the extreme, as I say. I, I can't say that enough times, I guess, today, because I, I just cannot believe the depths are going to. Uh, Minister Heyman has acknowledged publicly, I've been at conferences where he has said this, uh, you know, B.C. creates one-tenth of one percent of global emissions. We could we could knock our emissions to zero, like shut everything down as the NDP wants, and we would not make one iota of difference to the overall global uh, emission profile. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be taking steps to try to do everything we can to address uh, emissions. But to say that you're going to spend uh, tens of billions of dollars on, on the electrical plan over the next six or seven years, and there's, what, no cost to that? that, that some, somehow well, we are going to see our electricity bills go up at the same time? Like, they're, they're, the whole point of their carbon tax going to $170 was to help people ease and make these decisions as technology comes on that, that makes it affordable for them um, to adapt. It's not to take a, a sledgehammer and say, you must now install tens of thousands of dollars of equipment your house doesn't necessarily need at this current time. Um, we don't know, most houses probably don't actually have the electrical capacity in their panel if it was designed around gas appliances and, and gas mm-hmm. water heaters and furnaces. So, you know, trying to change out electrical service panels gets very expensive for homeowners as well. Uh, yeah. We're not hearing the government talk about that. And so it's this this idealistic uh, view of the world uh, that the premier is taking when it comes to things like this that doesn't actually match what people are feeling in their everyday lives in their homes on trying to figure out how to just pay average bills and, and get groceries for their, their family. Okay. okay, Peter, I take your point here about British Columbia's share of global emissions. What was that percentage again? One-tenth of one percent, and that's directly from the, the environment minister. One-tenth of one percent. So your point is that even if we shut the whole economy down and we went to zero emissions, that it, it wouldn't make a lick of difference anyway. It wouldn't stop, it wouldn't stop climate change. It wouldn't stop the forest fires. It wouldn't stop the, the extreme weather, is your point. And, and I've heard this argued bef- before. Here's the thing. Now, here's the comeback. If, if George Heyman was here right now, he would say to you, Hey, Peter, if everybody felt that way around the whole world, then nothing would get done, right? Like, it, he says, like, everyone has to do their, po- do their part because this is a climate change crisis. Like, what do you say to that? Well, I say that, first off, our, our, our electrical uh, grid is already green. So we were already starting at a very low emission profile compared to the rest of the world when you consider those jurisdictions that are burning coal um, to create uh, electricity. And that is why we, as BC United, are, are pushing heavily on saying we're all in on LNG because that helps that global emission profile. Um, you know, the forest fires don't get created strictly because um, uh, the weather within that like gets generated and starts within the confines of British Columbia. It's because of global impacts. And so we need to do our part as global citizens, absolutely, to help drive down those emissions. And that's why LNG and helping get uh, countries to transition away from coal-fired to natural gas fired um, is a very good strategy. Ironically, this uh, NDP uh, seemingly supports LNG, um, yet they don't want us to use it in our own province. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's ridiculous that they they are trying to say we need a really high expensive carbon tax that will drive people's change, and then they're going to come in by regulation and say it doesn't really matter what you think. Um, we're going to tell you what type of, of equipment you can use in your home to heat your home. Um, even if you're not confident, it will actually meet the needs for you and your what? family, let alone what do you whether think? or not you have the money to pay for it. 
Yeah, speaking of natural gas, what did you think of the the BC Utilities Commission decision on the Fortis BC natural gas pipeline expansion progress program here in the Okanagan? So this was Fortis BC. This is a three hundred and twenty-seven million dollar project. They wanted to expand this natural gas pipeline, install another thirty kilometers of pipe. And they say it's to respond to growing demand for gas in the Okanagan. They need to do this. People need this to heat their homes. And the BC Utilities Commission said, no, you can't do it. This is all private money. There wouldn't be a penny of taxpayers' money here. It's create a bunch of jobs. Fortis is saying we need this. There's demand for it. And you've got the Utilities Commission saying, no, no, you can't do it. We've got to electrify. We have to because of Clean BC. Exactly. What do you think of that decision? And and would your if you were elected, if you guys won the election in the fall, would you overturn that and allow that pipeline? Well, absolutely. There's no way that uh, under uh, Kevin Falk and uh, premiership that uh, we would be banning natural gas use for for people in in British Columbia. Um, we'd be reversing all of this because we need to we need to be realistic about this if we're going to bring people along. And and the very fact that Fortis needs that much extra energy into the Okanagan Valley, and now the BCUC is forced based on clean BC policies uh, to say they're not allowed to, to approve it, I think very clearly shows that any independence or any semblance of pretending the BCUC is still independent and not run by the Premier's office is out the window. From, from hydro rebates to anything else you can name, um, the Premier's office is full-on politicized and overridden uh, the BCUC time and again. And so, you know, the, the, the bottom line is this. It takes a certain amount of energy, be it gas or electricity, for this province to operate and heat your homes, cool your homes, uh, get around. And as we saw in the, in the cold snap, there was twice as much energy needed and provided by natural gas than there was by the electrical grid, which was running flat out as well. And so, yeah. You know, whether whether the government likes it or not, the reality is um, we do not have enough energy if you remove natural gas out of that equation to properly operate our province. We just simply okay. don't. And we won't have by 2030. And, uh, you know, Site C was on time and on budget when this government took over, according to Michelle Mungal, on June 30th of 2017, uh, Site C was on time and on budget. It's now ballooned. They won't even tell us what the cost of it is anymore, and they won't even give us a firm start date of when those turbines are going to start running, and it's years behind schedule. That's okay. the, the government that we are supposed to believe is going to supercharge and electrify this province in the next six years, no. it's, it's laughable. Okay, phase out natural gas appliances like natural gas furnaces, phase in electric appliances like heat pumps. This is a key part of Clean BC, the Provincial Climate Change Plan. Lots of calls on this. Sean in Chilliwack. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? I just wanted to know how they plan on doing this uh, for the entire, for all of BC, for the homes. When they don't even think they could do it for the hospitality of the restaurant industry. This, the amount of energy used to cook our food on a daily basis, just on fast food alone, the upgrade on the system would be astronomical. I don't understand how they can even propose this based on the cost conversion. So I'm just okay, curious Pete, if you have any answers. Peter, how are they going to get this done? Like, what's the plan here? Have they said? No, they haven't said. And, and you know, that's that's part of the problem. And I think uh, when you start hearing policies like this, this is why, you know, elections do matter, because if, if they're willing to, to go this heavy handed uh, with 57 seats, I, I shudder to think what they would do if they had an even bigger majority after the next election. And so, you know, that's why we're, we're being very clear about this. Um, it, it's not workable. Um, you, you, so you would scrap the. You guys would scrap the whole you guys would scrap the whole plan, correct? 
Well, absolutely. We'd rework it and, and we would come up with something that actually is as common sense and actually will see emissions go down without being overly punitive to people, without potentially putting people into to the stress of, of trying to come up with fifteen and $20,000 to, to make conversions on unperfectly good equipment and, and uh, give them options in their own daily lives while still uh, helping that, that global uh, piece of the emissions profile by helping other countries transition off of uh, their coal-fired plants. And, okay. and that's, uh, that would put meaningful change to the emission profile globally, which is, is uh, critically important. Glenn in Maple Ridge. Hi, Glenn. Go ahead. Uh, I want to know if EB actually has talked to the hydro. We don't have the power, okay? Like, he wants, to, I mean, he wants us to cement us as la-la land north here. California has been trying to do the same thing. They're losing businesses left, right, and center. Uh, people, they're actually net lost uh, uh, people are moving out of that state because of the strict restrictions. Um, I've got a hybrid system myself. I've got a gas furnace and I've got a heat pump. We got a really good deal when we moved into our house about nine years ago, bought a heat pump, a uh, new furnace, uh, an efficient furnace, and we installed both. And we find that running the heat pump in the winter, A, we don't like the heat. It kind of always, always feels a little drafty. Maybe we don't have the latest, greatest, um, top-of-the-line unit, but we still got a heat pump unit. So we turn it off in the winter, and we run on our natural gas, which gives us a nice, more comfortable heat. It's more, it's more cost-saving. And then in the summertime, we turn our heat pump on, and we love it in the summertime because it cools us down. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. Like, where is he going to get this power? We're importing 20% of power right now. So, yeah. like, like from where? Coal-powered plants in Alberta or Saskatchewan or wherever it's coming from? Thank like, you. Th- thank you, Glenn. You're paying attention. I-, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was 20% of electricity imported last year. It was the highest ever. Peter, where is the power going to come from? Wind power, right? Isn't that the answer? Wind power. Well, this is the same government that, that put a stop to all the independent power pr- uh, production in this province uh, that mainly were Indigenous companies. Um, they've now suddenly realized that was wrong, and so now they're scrambling to start put out a proposal call to get these projects back on the books and try to get power from them. But let's remember, um, we don't have uh, the cost of Site C even on our hydro bills yet. We don't have the cost of the $36 billion they announced, $24 million of which was already accounted for anyways, um, over the next 10 years. Uh, electricity is not going to be cheaper uh, in the next few years as we start layering on literally 50 or $60 billion to try to meet this Premier's wish of trying to transition off of uh, natural okay. gas in, in a very short time frame. Peter, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Anytime. All right, here we go now with our Emergencies Act debate. Now, remember, the Justin Trudeau government introduced the Emergencies Act to end the Freedom Convoy trucker protest in Ottawa. That was back in the early 2022. Man, what a showdown that was in Ottawa. Now, one of the most controversial parts of the of the Emergencies Act was it allowed the government to freeze the bank accounts of truckers who partic- participated in that particular protest. That was just one many of many controversial elements here. Now the Federal Court of Canada has ruled on this, ruling that the use of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable and infringed on the constitutional rights of the protesters. 
Okay, we've got both sides of it here for you standing by to discuss. First, let's go back in time here now. Now, here's Justin Trudeau at the height of the protest here and his message to the truckers in Ottawa. Have a listen. Some protesters came to Ottawa to express their frustration and fatigue with public health measures, and that's their right. Like I said, it's a right that we'll defend in this free and democratic country. But illegal blockades and occupations are not peaceful protests. They have to stop. Okay, that's uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau back in 2022. Okay, what a, a bombshell court ruling here on the Emergencies Act. Let's discuss it. Both sides of it now for you. Christine Van Guyen on the line. Christine is litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation. That was one of the groups that brought this case to the federal court. Christine, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Also on the line is Kyla Lee. Kyla is a Vancouver defense lawyer, Acumen Law, and Kyla supported the use of the Emergencies Act. Hi, Kyla. Hello. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you to both of you for doing this. Christine, let me go to you first. I know you must be very happy with this ruling. Your thoughts on it? Yeah. I mean, I'm ecstatic with this ruling. I think it's well-reasoned. I think it's very detailed. It's about 190 pages long. The justice goes through you know, some procedural issues, but also summarizes the arguments of all the parties. He gives a a kind of thank you to public interest litigant groups like the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation. That's my organization who had brought this case and said that we were able to marshal uh, the evidence to help him reach the conclusion that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was unreasonable, that the high threshold to invoke had not been met that there was no national emergency and no threat to the security of Canada as defined in the statute, and that the regulations enacted under it, that's the prohibition on gatherings and the uh, power to freeze bank accounts, that those violated the charter rights to freedom of expression and the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. This is essentially a victory on every meaningful part of the case for the groups, my group, that brought this case, and a massive uh, repudiation of the government's position. Okay, the government now saying they're going to appeal the ruling. Kyla Lee, Kyla, your thoughts on this. Why do you think the government actually did the right thing here with the Emergencies Act? Well, I think this is reflected to some extent in in the decision, and I suspect that this would ultimately form part of the government's grounds of appeal, is that especially for the situation as it was unfolding in, in Ottawa, there really didn't seem to be anything that could be done. There was a real problem because of where it was in Ottawa, getting cooperation between like local police, identifying the police of jurisdiction. It was impacting the operations of uh, Parliament, the House of Commons. People could get to their jobs uh, to run the country. Um, and so I, I do think that there was, you know, some ground to stand on there. Obviously, you know, as the judge found, the, the issue in the situation in, in Coots is a little bit different because there was a local police that in that jurisdiction were able to deal with a lot of the security related concerns. Um, But I think at the end of the day, when you have people who who effectively are occupying our nation's capital and by doing so, preventing work from being done and threatening to overthrow the government in some instances, 
it's difficult to see from an outsider perspective how that doesn't fall within the definition of national emergency, even though perhaps um, the the method that they went about doing it and the justification that they gave in their rationale for doing it might have fallen short of what's required when giving reasons for invoking that type of act. Okay, Christine, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, it sort of sounds, I'm not quite sure what Kyla's position is actually, Kyla, um, it sounds like you're saying that the threshold, you know, when you look at the statutory definition, it, it isn't met. Um, and that is what was was found here. Look, I agree with you that there were policing failures. Um, I agree with you that there were failures at the political level. And I absolutely agree that the blockades needed to be removed. The important thing that this court found and that actually was in the evidence at the Public Order Emergency Commission was that the policing plan that was ultimately used to clear protesters in Ottawa was the plan that had been developed and approved before the invocation of the act. So, and that was mm. a plan using ordinary policing powers. Uh, of course, in Coots and at the border blockades, the, the border blockades in Ontario were cleared before the invocation of the act. The, um, border blockade at Coots was cleared using existing criminal law power. And, Part of the threshold of invoking the act, and this is a very specific type of legislation, it has terms in it that are defined through reference to other pieces of legislation, but one of the thresholds is that no other law is available to uh, put an end to the national emergency. And that threshold is is very high, and it's required because of the sweeping powers that the Emergencies Act has, right? Like this is a piece of legislation that allows the prime minister and cabinet to create new criminal law by executive order without parliamentary debate, uh, without advance notice. It's a piece of legislation that replaced the War Measures Act, which was a, a law that was abused by previous governments. So they want the, the, the drafters of this law wanted that threshold to be high. And Okay. Okay. Ky- it's Kyla. Resolved let- with existing law. Okay. Kyla, quick response from you. Then we'll fit a break in here. Kyla, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't disagree with the point on Coots, and I think the 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 judge got it right in the federal court decision about the situation in, in Coots. But I don't think you can just point to the fact that they came up with a policing plan, uh, if for uh, before invoking the act to say that the act wasn't justified because just because you have a policing plan doesn't mean that the police can actually carry out the plan. Doesn't mean that the plan without additional powers being afforded to them is necessarily one that can be done or that the police feel comfortable doing on the legal advice that they're getting. All right, it is our Emergencies Act debate. we got both sides of it here for you. Christine Van Gein, Kyla Lee, and lots of calls here. Susan in North Vancouver. Hi, Susan, go ahead. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I, I'm on the side of the government. I think the police were absolutely useless. We all watched. They were live streaming themselves. Um, we watched the police go by every day saying, please stop hawking your horns, please stop hawking your horns, and nothing was done to, to stop it. I'm wondering if one of those lawyers tell us how civil cases is going, because a civil case will be easier to prove. Oh, okay, uh, you're breaking up just here a little, a little bit. But Christine, let me go to you first. I mean, the caller thinks the government did the right thing. You're obviously on the other side of it. What do you think was the most egregious part of the Emergencies Act? Was it the ability of the government to freeze bank accounts? 
I, I think it was the, in, for me, it was the invocation itself. Mm. Um, if, if the honking was such a concern, it was addressed through a private injunction. So it, yeah. it actually wasn't even the government that stopped the honking. So it was it was private citizens who brought an injunction that was enforced by police. So it kind of proves the point that if if that was your biggest concern, you didn't even need the, the government to to address it. Um, as for the the there's a class action that's been brought against the truckers for uh, the, the the disruption. I, I don't know what the status of that claim is. I, I'm, I'm actually not uh, that optimistic about it, but, you know, okay. I don't know. Okay, Kyla, is your point that the police were clearly out of their depths there? I remember listening to Chief Slowly, the Ottawa Police Department uh, chief, who later resigned. I thought you couldn't be a more aptly named police chief because you, you moved so slowly <laughs> here to deal with this. This guy, he seemed incompetent. Is, is that your point? Like the police, maybe they had a plan to deal with this, but they couldn't execute the plan. So that's why the government had to do this. Is that what you're saying? Yes, effectively, that that, you know, being able to come up with a plan and being able to execute a plan and having the legal authority or believing that you have the legal authority and be able to persuade your members to act on that legal authority are two different things. And so that's why I say that, you know, the use of the Emergencies Act essentially empowered the police to do what they wanted to do. um, And to some extent, also, when it comes to people like Chief Slowly, forced their hand to actually act and actually do something. It should never have taken, um, like Christine said, a private injunction to get people to stop honking their horns 24-7 and disrupting everybody that was within earshot of that of that occupation. Okay, squeeze another call in. Dev in Vancouver. Hi, Dev, go ahead. Hi, uh, my point, uh, hello, my point is uh, such a draconian power to use uh, a sledgehammer to, 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 to kill an ant Absolutely disagree. And the other thing I'd like to state, in my opinion, I, the Trudeau government was begging for a for a situation where even one or two protesters maybe stormed parliament because I, I feel that they used this. This was more of a political thing. And and mm. at the end of the day, nobody wanted to look bad. They kept pointing the fingers at each other. So I, I completely disagree with the use of such a draconian power for something okay. that could have been dealt with. Yeah, thanks for the call. Christine, would you agree with that description? Draconian? Is that what this was? I would say it, it is extraordinary legislation with the most sweeping powers known in statute that essentially upends the structure of our Constitution that requires for you know criminal law to be created. It needs to go through the legislature. Like There's a reason that this type of thing exists. But it's for extraordinary circumstances, not for domestic protests. And in response to some of the points that Kyla brought up, incompetence among the police and provinces is just not a part of the statutory threshold. Uh, Further to that, police themselves said at the Public Order Emergency Commission, where we were a party and I was there, I watched Every single day was there for the entire final week, including the cross-examination of the prime minister. Police themselves said they did not need the Emergencies Act. They had their quotes were things like it greased the wheels. It was helpful. It was useful. But helpful and useful is not a part of the threshold. And that is actually part of the federal court decision on this, that that more is required. It can't be just helpful. It needs to be last resort because of the nature of 
the sweeping nature of the powers of the Emergencies Act. Fit another call in. Tom in Vancouver. Hi, Tom. Go ahead. Hi, good morning. So I just want to relay my personal experience. First of all, just say I agree with both sides that the police lost control and the use of the Emergency Measures Act may have been too much. But I actually lived in Lower Town during that time and was actually selling my place to relocate back to Vancouver. I saw a lot of my friends' businesses disrupted, damaged, destroyed. The police lost control. There was a lot of politics involved in both sides. But uh, to be honest, it was a horrible situation. They were not nice people, and they had bad intentions. Many of them did. The protesting, yes our right to protest at the beginning it was very peaceful but they should have never allowed it to start so do you think so do you think therefore i'm very grateful you called in tom do you think therefore the government did the right thing with the emergencies act they had no other choice they had no other they had no other choice okay guys we just got we just got just over a minute left so i'll give you 30 seconds each to wrap up christine he says they had no they had no other choice what do you say well, they did have other choices and sort of if you look at the overbreadth of the measures, it it was not what courts call minimally impairing. So, for example, the prohibition on gatherings restricted people who wanted to peacefully protest on Parliament Hill with a sign and it froze the bank accounts of joint account holders. The judge in this case found that there was no attempt to kind of more narrowly tailor any um of the measures so that they weren't so in breach of charter rights. I mean, okay. if, if, you had a, if you had a husband protesting and you were back at home in Vancouver, your bank account, if you had a shared account, your bank account was frozen too. It could put your mortgage at risk. You know, you wouldn't be able to buy food and okay. medication. That's not, Ky- that's overly broad. Kyla, you get the last word here. You just got 30 seconds. I'll go ahead. I think certainly the government felt like they had no other choice. And while you can analyze things in hindsight and point to other choices that were available to them, you have to remember that, you know, this at the end of the day, this decision was a judicial review. It was analyzing the what was in the mind of the decision maker at the time and whether at the time on the information known to them, that decision was reasonable. And I think that's where the government has a strong argument. And at the time, they did feel like they had no other choice. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.